important. I mean, the machine, like there's a, a girl in front of a movie, uh, uh, what do you say, the, the cash box, which is very like machine-like, and then it goes through a similar machine, which is a jukebox, and it goes, then it goes to a car, and it's different than the Homosexuals, and then it comes to you know. I mean, sometimes I, I couldn't repeat what why I put it in that order. It's easier in the beginning, all this, and then I start again with a flag. And then in this instance, uh, in that second section where it starts again with the flag. And then it comes to that picture of uh, people looking out of a streetcar. And I followed it with the picture of what the people were looking at. It. I think on the same film script, right? Whenever that happened, I kept it together. Whenever I took two photographs, I mean photographs, and I choose from one contact sheet, and I choose that that would be kept in the book. I left them together, uh, and, and that happened like two or three times. And then the third time I used the flag. Yeah, I always, then I followed the flag with three pictures that were, two pictures that were still. hardly any people in it. And then again, I, I photographed just an, an empty table, and then comes an empty gas station, and a jukebox, and then an elevator, and then a television screen, and then a drive-in, and shifts to something else. I tried to not just have one picture thrown in alone, isolated as, as a picture. That's what I tried to do. Uh, I think it it often sort of succeeds, but then it sometimes. Will you stick to the exact uh, sequence again in the new version? Pardon? Will you stick to the exact sequence again in this new version? Yeah, it's going to be exactly the same, no, no change. Pardon? If it comes out the way it came out here, I'm gonna, I'd be satisfied. Yeah, then I, you know, I left the cars together, like in a row of three or four pictures of cars, and then shifted to something else. It has nothing to do with the geography. It was purely a, a visual. The only time it had to do with geography when it happened that I left two pictures in the same contact sheets. I, I kept them together. Was there any, any master plan? I mean, anything that tied the several sections together? Or any no. reason why one section preceded another section? No.
approaching one uh, doing photographs. How would I describe your point of view in uh, photographs? Well, when I applied for a Guggenheim Fellowship, I said it would be uh, a totally new experience for me, uh, you know, coming from Europe, traveling the first time across the country. And I would try to make that visible, my uh, amazement at it, or my, whatever I felt about it. I, I said uh, I, I would see, because of that, because of being new to it, and things that normally would not attract the attention of another photographer who is used to the scene, that's what I would photograph. I don't know if it came out like that.
have had the will be in this evening. Let me lecture here. Then I suppose we'll be continuing with him. And then, of course, uh, Thursday evening, uh, we've got our days coming in. possibly setting up an evening that we could maybe go into the gallery and, you know, set the prints out uh, for those that didn't mind it on those terms. So I'll try to take the kind of amounts of time that we'll follow along I decided to change the emphasis of what I wanted to say this morning from what was supposed to be a discussion primarily of stereo views to what will be a discussion primarily of language, behavior, and perception. And what I have to say obviously is not a result of 30 years of research. I wanted to talk about some general ideas that I've encountered in the last year and a half that have interested me. I don't feel as if six weeks is enough to make a really a thorough study of even a tiny area, I shouldn't say tiny, but a relatively limited area in photography. And then there would be projection problems and that you wouldn't be able to experience the view as you were supposed to experience it when it has terrific distortion in scale. I kept turning up incredible material that I had no opportunity to check out thoroughly. 
Uh, but I'll mention some things I think at the end of the talk, just as remarks. So instead of the title reading Stereo View, Some Remarks on Visual Perception, you might kind of read it as Visual Perception, Some Remarks on Stereo Views. Or if I were really looking for a provocative title, I might say that I should have titled my talk Confessions of a Fine Arts Dropout. Because about a year and a half ago, I became profoundly disenchanted with the traditional fine arts approach at the Art Institute to visual material. And I found a more congenial environment at the University of Chicago because the university is very congenial to young iconoclasts in any field. For example, the introductory lecture in aesthetics begins with a question, you know, to what extent should we accept someone like Rembrandt's fine arts? You know, it, they begin immediately to dispel the great artist myth. Um, in fact, the argument went along economic means, you know, how much was paid for Rembrandt 75 years ago in comparison to other things that were made at the time. Uh, they approach art more as like a sign system of communication, social communication, and uh, a social psychological analysis of taste more than some innate things, uh, which raises another question, to what extent should a historian see his task as acculturation? And I'll have more to say about that a little later. But take a critique, for example. Somebody puts up work. Either it's good work or it isn't work. You know, either you find it interesting to yourself or you don't. But what usually happens after that is sort of an Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. Everybody talks and hardly anyone listens. And there's very little understanding of the picture on its own terms, except, you know, in rare instances where there are people with a lot of insight. But not only is a picture not understood, but the people don't even understand their own behavior. Uh, I found photography critiques interesting from a social psychological point of view, you know, small groups, small group behavior, rather than uh, from an art point of view. And often there were even pathological considerations, but this isn't my primary concern. My primary concern is getting after a basic non-art evaluation of pictures, which I certainly don't have yet, but I, I found out some interesting things while looking for one. People keep on making the analogy to language and pictures. All throughout Aperture, you have this coming up again and again and again. But I think before you can pursue this further, you really have to look at the research that's been done already in language behavior. Because if you don't, you're going to be recreating things over and over again, like you'll be creating fire again and the wheel again. The question that was raised is language a system is incredibly interesting. And there's a whole history of that idea in linguistics, as there's a whole history of photography. And people who have no knowledge of what's been done before will end up recreating all of this, and it will take longer than if you look at what's been done. Of course, language is a system, but psycholinguists are still working on it. And right now, the uh, psychology and philosophy of the thing have completely broken down. I mean, there's no boundary anymore between psychology and philosophy and language behavior, or so it seems to me. And currently, in this research, we're trying to tell computers how to recognize nouns as a part of this. And it's very hard to tell a computer how to recognize a noun. In fact, it's been impossible. Uh, there are incredible, incredibly interesting problems in machine translation that uh, come up out of this problem of language as a system. My first subjective impression of research in language behavior and the people who are doing it uh, is that it's very much like the bead game. And this might not mean anything to you if you don't know the Hermann Hesse book Magister Ludi. 
but he refers to Castalia, uh, which is a place where pure scholarship was fostered. Uh, people look for truth and try to seek out the basic patterns and structures that underlie reality. Maybe you know some of the man's other work, uh, Gertrude, Steppenwolf, Journey to the East, Siddhartha. Siddhartha was very popular about two years ago. Uh, and it was interesting to me to find that Fox Talbot, in his motto, Preceding Pencil of Nature, mentioned the same place. I probably should spell it because thought of to be, you know, pure research and, and sort of a getting at of reality. But, okay, you come back to the question, what is the relationship between language and photography? And then what are the questions that will be productive for research? This is a prime consideration for me because we can sit around and debate things like uh, whether there are a finite or an infinite number of angels on the head of a pin. But if you don't devise some kind of a system that you can try to get at things, a little better than just conversation, you know, you're just getting nowhere. One looks and one finds things like Kepish's book, Language of Vision, and one looks carefully at the introductory essay by Hayakawa, whose interest was semantics, and you find they're talking about things like revision of vision, and he talks about a grammar of vision, a syntax of vision, visual statements, and I was very impressed by this, but it was only a couple of weeks ago when I looked at that book again that syntax and grammar were in quotation marks. And this, he was using a metaphor in, in his writing about this, but I had tried taking that literally. Last year, and I'll talk about that. You know, I get to the framework, I tried considering this in. Kassirer, Ernst Kassirer, discusses art as symbolic language, but I don't understand what Kassirer is talking about, really, to discuss him fully. Croce, Benedetto Croce and Aesthetics. Not too many people remember the full title of Croce's book. Aesthetic is a science of expression in general linguistic. In at least the 1922 version of his book, he stated that aesthetic and linguistic conceived as true sciences are not two distinct things, but one thing only. It's interesting to compare what's been done in the two fields since 1922. The linguists and psycholinguists have collated an incredible amount of data about the structure of language, and they've done their research in phonemics, phonetics, and morphology, which means, let's say, pho phonetics involves um, speed sounds in any language, you know, with the notation. Maybe you're familiar with this. Uh, but it's a very precise kind of notation for getting at speed sounds. Uh, morphemes are the smallest units that combine, like, uh, the less and useless, and they, they, they've tried to get at these things, and they're, they're looking at very tangible things, and they're looking at things cross-culturally. And we have the most information on this aspect of language behavior and the least information on semantics, but the point is that the linguists went after very tangible things, and once I have no such progress in aesthetics, or at least none that I can find. But one of the most fruitful systems that I've encountered we're dealing with the quote aesthetic response that I've been working with is that devised by Heinz Werner.
and the book is Symbol Formation. It was co-authored with Bernard Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, but it's Werner's system. And the hypothetical construct that Werner uses is called physiognomic perception. And this construct falls into three categories, and you could call it developmental as opposed to experimental, gestalt, an organomistic holistic, which means it's, it's global. It's a global concern. It's, uh, in psychology, you know, either you're doing stimulus and response things, either you're isolating tiny units of behavior, or you're considering the whole individual. And very few American psychologists have gone to the point of concerning the entire individual, concerning themselves with the entire individual. It's a much more fruitful approach, I think, for aesthetics than the stimulus and response model of Pavlovian research. And one must look very carefully at what Pavlov's primary research was. And one finds you can't use the, the word stimulus and response the same way Pavlov did, because the aesthetic thing just isn't, they just are totally different entities. The key construct, as I mentioned before, is physiognomic perception. Physiognomic perception is that what happens as when one looks at a picture or a thing and reads into it things that are not really there. This happens when you describe the color as cool or warm. It's, it's like the pathetic fallacy in literature. Oh, and examples are endless, but take a trite example like the angry sea. It's a view of the world that's shared to a certain degree by poets, artists, children, primitives, schizophrenics, Werner, in his earlier book, Comparative Psychology of Mental Development, which is interesting reading for anyone studying primitive art, he describes physiognomic perception as a dynamic perception of things based on the fact that objects are predominantly understood through the motor attitudes of the subject, which leads to a perception anyway, of the environment as animate, and objects, even though actually lifeless, may express some inner form of life. If you know the Bailey uh, Swedland catalog of found objects, you find that it works somewhat this way. One finds things that he found that look very much like faces, and if they don't look like faces, they look as if they're like presences. But it's something that one reads into. It's like what Robert Frank had said. You know, you have, after you do something, it's over with. And you, 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 everybody around is gonna have a different response of a photograph. And it should be this way. If there is a consensus, if I showed you a photograph and asked you to write what you felt, I mean really sincerely felt when you looked at that picture, and I got you know, two and three that looked alike, you know, looked, the writing looked alike in what they said, I would say that you're probably repeating something you've heard more than something you've actually felt. Or it's a socially acceptable thing to say. Certain adjectives seem to get accepted in our criticism. And then when you have the adjectives, you've got a convenient handy label that you can tack on to a, certain, to a certain style or a certain kind of painting, and you no longer have to confront the thing on its own terms. You have this handy label that's applied by a critic who happens to be in fashion, and, and you no longer have to confront the thing itself. Non-artists also have this kind of experience. People remember from their childhood where they 
they've experienced things like rocks as being alive, in a sense. You know, the poor lonely rocks, they, they sit there and no one, they don't move, they see the same things all the time. Kandinsky's and Clay's notebooks are good examples of this, I think, and a perfect way to illustrate how this phenomenon is misinterpreted by art educationists. We try to standardize this, you know, we try to standardize the system of warm colors and cool colors, and certain kinds of pictures as happy or sad. And it's not like denying the feeling that a certain color seems to be warm or certain colors seem to be cold. But I just object to the standardization where everyone has to perceive, you know, blue and green as cold colors. No. There's really no way of making evaluation of physiognomic perception of pictures either. And most criticism is a physiognomic response. The only possible way, I think, of making an evaluation is, is how differentiated is the response. There are people that can come up with like a one-word response to a picture. There are people that could write paragraphs of very uh, interesting descriptions of their responses. It's a difference, I think, sometimes between, between being articulate and inarticulate, or able to respond to new things and unable to respond to new things. One of the reasons psychologists have no, want no part of this kind of research is that it relies so heavily on introspective data as opposed to uh, research with uh, pigeons and rats that you can actually, you know, do research by cutting out portions of, you know, the brain or, or you don't have to, uh, you don't have to uh, use the same kind of ethical standards you do when you deal with human beings, you know. But there's no way of getting at telling whether the person is lying or not, you know, because I can fake a response. I can fake a physiognomic response very easily. So can you, really. You can write anything if I ask you to write something about a picture. So you always have to go under the assumption that the person is telling you the truth and giving and using this data, which, which is difficult. The thing that doesn't sit right with most people in fine arts when you discuss this is that, but see, there's no right physiognomic judgment. There's no one right thing to say about a picture when criticizing it. And I find it strange that so many people in the fine arts, like historians, are after the one right answer. You know, as if there were one set of rules that you could use, there's one right thing you should say when you look at a picture. And I find this very, very strange. The recent studies on creativity, and the book is uh, Creativity and Intelligence, by Jackson and Gates Sells, and they're at the University of Chicago. I think the book was published in 1962. Define, well, they define an aspect of creativity, and there are many definitions of creativity, but their little dichotomy is uh, convergent and divergent thinking. Convergent, yes, you have a question? I just wanted to get Oh, creativity and intelligence. And the authors are Jackson and Gatesells. They're studying art students, creative art students at the Art Institute. It's incredible they found them. Anyway. Convergent thinking being the looking for one right answer, and the divergent thinking being, you know, the creative thinking, the generating of as many right answers, or as many possibilities, or as many solutions to a problem as possible. And I find it absolutely incredible that there are more convergent thinking people in the fine arts and more divergent 
thinking people in the sciences this is my own experience and it probably wouldn't hold up and that why is a picture good then you know how, how is one going to make a, an evaluation well I really don't know I have no answers but a system that's interesting me besides the Werner system is Berlane, B-E-R-L-Y-N-E, and his book is Conflict, Arousal, and Curiosity. And he would be after things like incongruity, you know, like in the snapshots where one finds new picture information. One finds information that you don't really expect to find, and that this information holds your attention. But I haven't investigated that further. I would really like to. And one when they do their research with uh, drawings, they, they put um, different parts of like an animal's body together. You know, and they watch people attending to these drawings rather than a simple straightforward drawing. And they have uh, measuring devices where they measure galvanic skin response, like uh, you know, heart rate and things like that when you look at that. At least they have a way of measuring where the Werner and Kaplan system doesn't. The Werner system has implicit in it something that I think is very interesting, and it's a hierarchy of development. When Werner writes for scientists, he says that there are two primary levels. There's the physiognomic level of apprehending something, which is sort of a lower level. And he describes it even as pathological regression. And then there's a higher level, which is a geometric technical level, which is interesting. Because when he writes for artists, and his article is in Kepish's book, The New Landscape, published by Paul Theobald, 1956. He says that there's good evidence that a child lives in a world which has polarities between, oh wait, it doesn't have polarities. Those polarities between the outside world and the inside world have broken down, or they haven't really been established, not broken down. Long before a child sees a color as red or blue, I mean, he sees it as strong or exciting or quiet or soft, or before he distinguishes properties of triangularity or properties of squareness as such, he visually experiences a difference between squatty and pointed or thorny things. So how does one find this out? Well, you end up by interviewing children, which, which is an experience. But again, you ask yourself, how reliable is this evidence? And you just have to, it's as reliable as you want to think it is. But again, there's another question mark. Uh, should this experience be cultivated? Maybe this is what our education should be about, instead of the geometrical, technical point of view. Well, Harold Rosenberg says in one of his essays in Tradition of the New that Rimbaud had concluded from his studies of antique poetry that the genuine poet did not center his attention on the poem, but on the transformation of himself into the maker of poetry. So in physiognomic perception, uh, you have a focus of attention on the process instead of on the thing being looked at. And another comparison could be made, and this is almost banal, but if you know the book Zen and the Art of Archery, where again the, the attention is on the process and the product is sort of, is sort of in a secondary position. I'm going to stop and ask for questions right now. I'm sort of rattling on. And do you understand what I mean when I say physiognomic perception? I mean, this is one's response, one's quote, aesthetic response, unquote, to a picture. I just refer primarily to uh, when something is read in this 
Yes, and I mean like anything, right? In rightness and wrongness of the picture, goodness and badness, value judgments, composition criticism. <coughs> and what were the three in? Oh, that, that's sort of a categorization in terms of kinds of psychology that, that are being practiced. You know, is it compared to clinical, social, experimental, as compared to schools, like, like gestalt, as compared to, say, stimulus and response notions in psychology. Ernie, <coughs> uh, mentioned what you've read looking at these objects well, that would be sort of a geometrical, technical kind of thing if you were looking at something and not attuned to your own physiognomic perception of it. It would be like, uh, you know, you look at something and start making notations like square, triangle, uh, ashtray, 1924, you know, things like that, dating the thing, but not responding aesthetically. Made by this type of camera. Yeah, taken by X camera in such and such year by so and so person on such and such day with such and such emotion. something like this, and what I should have done is probably do it with this group, is show a photograph, and it's something like the thing Ryan White has done, and it's something I've experimented yeah, with with the group. Is that what you're basing it on? I, I'd like some specific data. Uh, do you have any, or is it a subjective response? No, it isn't a subjective response. It's reading out things that you know, if, when I did this with, with the group, I got no two that were the same. But I had read from Werner things that when he does it, he doesn't get two that are the same, two that have similarities, that are exactly similar. I mean, it's something that I... am not sure I, what this proves, though, I, I, in terms of, with regard to your conclusion. Oh, what I was getting at is, is you know, there are certain catchwords that one always gets when one starts criticizing photographs, either start getting categorized according to the way someone else has categorized them or someone else has categorized. Well, I, I don't want to, because uh, I think uh, this point is really crucial to your entire discussion. Yes. Uh, yeah. Relative to your, uh, your basic your basic idea, and I just wondered whether or not uh, there, there was some data and what was the, were the conditions of this testing mm -hmm. uh, to arrive at these mm -hmm. conclusions, because uh, I can be very skeptical about testing situations. I know you are. And I know that any testing situation is a distortion. Right. And so how, it doesn't how, exactly, nothing exactly proves anything. It's just sort of more evidence that would support my thinking in that direction. Well, can you enumerate what evidence uh, uh, is supporting uh, uh, that statement? Well, there's evidence in 
the Werner and Kaplan study on symbol formation. There's evidence, well, I accepted this, so I haven't really re-evaluated the testing situation because when I've done it, I haven't come up with two that are alike. Or when you, you play the game the other way, when you say, give me a line drawing that symbolizes such and such and such, like, uh, give me a line drawing that symbolizes angry. You yeah, don't I, get two yeah. that are alike. Uh, but is it possible, see, we're, we're, we're jumping between two possible conditions, that of a line drawing and that of a photograph. Yeah, it's a decoding and an encoding uh, kind of thing. I, I think you really have to discriminate uh, in terms of each, because each tends to give you a different kind of data. Right. Right, and I don't think the two are really comparable in, in that respect. You can't make the same kind of conclusion. To what extent, to what extent is, is this your, uh, arrived at uh, with the use of photographs or employing photographs, or is it mostly It drawings? hasn't been. It's mostly been drawings. Now, is it conceivable that if attention were given to the photograph on these terms that the conclusions might uh, vary? Oh, I'm sure they would because there are many more variables operating in the photograph than there are in a simple line drawing. And I think that's one of the reasons line drawings were used. Not, not that they're better, I would rather do work with photographs, of course. But there are fewer variables. You know, you don't have focus, image scale, uh, color, gradations of gray, um, subject matter. Yeah, but there's a, a problem in trying to oversimplify this situation because you know it can lead to very confusing conclusions because it's not you know actual in a sense it's interpretive uh, someone is interpreting in another way there are different ways to interpret visual experience if we've only looked at one possible way say in terms of the line drawing uh, I would think this would tend to negate and has for me in too many instances the thesis is generally being presented. May I ask? Mm -hmm. um, well, what kind of lesson is the line drawing story? Are they special names that purpose or were they taking pictures by? No, it was. The research was interesting in that the line drawings were produced by non artists and the line drawings were produced. Uh, by people after they were given a direction, like they were given a word like angry, and they were told to make a line drawing. And the focus of attention was not so much on the product, you know, it was not so much on the line drawing as something to be framed and looked at as symbolizing angry. But the focus was in that people could make a vehicle, you know, a vehicle for a reference. You know, and not that anyone else was supposed to look at the line drawing and see angry when they looked at it, but that they were able to make some kind of representation, some kind of notation for themselves to, quote, express, end quote, this word, this concept. And like everyone else, you know, would make a different kind of a drawing. Like if I said happy, you know, and Thank you. 
Person's just repeating something from Harold Rosenberg, and you know the person's just repeating something from Greenberg. Well, I think the picture is quite pointed and quite simple in that sense. Then it seems to me that the bell curve is going to take that kind of shape. The picture is very ambiguous and very uh, non pointed. You're going to get a different kind of shape at all. Yeah. So I just wonder what kind of picture are we following to understand that we're using. Right, very simple things. There were very simple things being used. Nothing more complicated than a distortion in typography, or nothing more. Uh, they had things like this, you know, and they did quote stimuli, and then people would read it. I mean, that's it's almost absurdly simple. But again, the thing with physiognomic perception is that it doesn't stop with pictures, you know. I mean, there's no line. I mean, it could be this ashtray, it could be this table, it could be the situation, it could be, uh, you know, it doesn't only happen with art. Except most people suppress it in favor of functioning in another mode. Because you just couldn't go along, you know, aesthetically responding to everything. And you have to 
avoid bumping into people and other important things like that. Two, uh, two related questions. 
because she slid over. Your reference to Kandinsky and, uh, and Clay. Yes. Uh, how do you interpret uh, the meaning of these two works? You were so vague. You see, you, you set up the question of uh, whether or not this is uh, the referent or whether this is a vehicle for a referent. This wasn't, that wasn't clarified. The implication, I think, was that it was a referent. I, I think it could be challenged definitely as being again another vehicle for a reference. Um, then, in all of this uh, uh, testing, uh, what instances can you provide where the physiognomic response has not been, uh, uh, let me put it this way, in testing the physiognomic response, it was tested uh, with pictures as answers instead of words as answers. So you could put certain options into the testing right. situation, which I think is right. And that hasn't been done, and that might be very interesting to do. Uh, all right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really wonder about uh, the state of research. <coughs> Sort of came out like a little swipe there. 
Oh, I didn't mean this in this way, but I think that, like the pedagogical sketchbooks are, you know, when they're used as exercises, you know, it's a series of right answers or right solutions to a series of problems. Have, uh, have you found anyone working physiognomic research interpreting uh, by a sketchbook? No, the only thing from Werner is that he said, some artists report physiognomic perception, quote from Kandinsky, end quote. You know, a nice physiognomic account. And that's it. There isn't much research being done in this area because it's unpopular because of its heavy reliance on introspective data, which is out. You know, certain things get in fashion in research, and introspection is out. So. Did Werner now leave that Kandinsky at any time formulated the system of physiognomic responses? He says that you know great artists report physiognomic perception, like Kandinsky, you know, there's a quote. And then there's there's the hint that one might be able to look at Kandinsky's paintings and find cues for physiognomic perception, find evidences of of this, but that's not spelled out. There's a sort of a between the lines kind of thing. I, I want to get back to the question you asked me. When you say specific, you mean in the terms of like a specific word that reoccurred? Well, that's what disturbs me, is that it's a, a word system. You see, it's, it's already, I would think, in a testing situation, something would break down. Well, the word gave them the option of 35, say, photographs you know, as control factors in response. And from the stimulus, they went another photograph and pick that out, I think you'd be closer than finding their finding the verbal equivalent <coughs> response. I would think you would want to find a visual <coughs> for their response. Uh, I'm on the stand I would set that up. Oh well we, I don't uh, let's get no I, I no it can be done. It can no there's no question. Uh, what I'm concerned about is that uh, in most of uh, of the testing situ situations involving uh, language, I think, uh, and pictures, uh, I, I can't I can't rely on them as having any meaning whatsoever. I think by the conditions that they've, they've established, they've already limited their data uh, because they don't understand the picture experience to begin with. Well, I would say. <coughs> Our situation, we did run across some similar words used many times. But that's that's a that's a vague kind of variable thing in the sense that a word can be in popular use and equated you know, very readily. It can be conditioned by other things. But what I was going to say is that in many instances when we run across the same words, there are very superficial types of things that you could say. You know, they weren't really getting that out of the photograph. You know, uh, whereas in other times. Like with the children, they might tell a little story about what was happening, and it seemed to correspond. Same and that now, you shifted. Same, similar, correspond. You see the problem? Comparable, uh, <coughs> relative. Uh, uh, I'm trying to function out the basis established that this really, uh, if, if there is something to be gotten that we can't really rely on a lack of ability to really interpret the data. So when you start talking about saying similar and comparable, you know, 
relative. There is also but already a confusion building. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm still questioning whether it, it can be achieved you know, on these terms. I'm also questioning whether it need be achieved on these terms, whether there are other possibilities. Um, but I, I, I want to uh, sorry. Can I just accessible to everyone, but what I found out about information that's accessible to everyone is that sometimes it's not that reliable. On Earth, all kinds of strange and kind of things when you're really good at something. I haven't gotten at those things the right way. It's right on the front of the book. Thank you, Yes. Aggressive state found in children, you know, hernias, artists, and uh, the, a higher, quote, higher state is the geometrical technical perception. But when he writes for artists in the new landscape, Paul Theobald, 1956, uh, he tells you that they're kind of equal and they should develop like right, right along next to each other. That one isn't better than the other, but they're like two ways of functioning. You know, one's quote scientific. You can think of one as being sort of scientific and the other as being sort of poetic. <coughs> so, you know, one finds this, and I thought it was a little disturbing that, you know, there's a put down in one case, and then there's sort of a concession in, in the other place. Can you distinguish between um, physiognomic perception and geometric uh, technical perception? Well, will I distinguish? No, no. I Oh, I'm sorry. We were distinguishing. Oh, when? When I was distinguishing. Um, <clears throat> we use as, a, as the main basis of difference the fact that the former is not measurable and the, the latter is measurable. Well, actually, neither are measurable. You know, to call something a square or to call something a pointed thing a hard point of them, you know, with corners, you know, something. Uh, there are just two kinds of labels, two different sets of labels. This is what I want to get at. In other words, the problem of illusion in geometric uh, technical perception. The uh, problem of what? Illusion? Illusion. Delusion. Illusion. Illusion. Yeah. Okay. Can be quite severe then in, in trying to assess the, the data. Well, the Did thing. You mentioned squareness. <coughs> as an example, as yeah. an arbitrary sort of example. Uh, you know, one can, uh, if everybody who reads a picture can assume that that shape is square, but in fact, they'll really measure it and it isn't. Uh, uh, how does this fit into uh, uh, the geometric technical uh, perception? I don't know, but the thing that interests me as you were talking about the geometrical technical perception is that it's something that we've agreed on socially. 
And I think this is an important distinction that we've all agreed to call something a square instead of our own little pet name for it. And I don't know what you mean by, you know, you see it as a square and you measure it and it isn't. Well, a square, of course, you know, it's a trapezoid or something? Yeah, I don't but the natural fact, it turns out to be a trapezoid. It, it looks like a square. Oh, that's another issue. That's another issue of perception. Well, that, uh, how does that belong? I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't go into discussion. Well, you, you were the one who used uh, the, the squareness as an example of that's right. geometric technical perception. Right. As an aspect of calling something that looks like a square a square, but I didn't get into the problem of how we perceive something as square. I'm just you know, taking the perception of something as a square as a given, because there's a whole list of arguments about you know, when, when it tilts on its side, it's a trapezoid, and the distortions that occur, like in the Ames room, where you, know, you build a whole room that's, that's completely out of kilter, and yet people recognize that it's a normal room. But that's a whole very it's interesting, but I'm not going to discuss it. But this still uh, is, is in the category of the geometric perception. Yeah, I guess so. Yes. I just, um, <coughs> so I because uh, again, I think we're at a very good point, and I, I would like to just clarify uh, some things in, in, in the progression of, of the workshop, in that uh, we have been laying out some data all last week on uh, things seem to imply that there are certain problems here. And it's significant uh, is that as we uh, tend to face you know, a, a teaching situation uh, where we're trying to motivate another individual on visual terms, uh, much of what we're discussing becomes crucially incredibly important uh, that you, you know, this should not, what we're discussing shouldn't be seen as an isolated unit that's been presented, but a, a very relevant consideration in what's going on in the workshop. So. Yeah, I'm kind of sorry to digress, but you know, that got off the point of perception instead of stereotyping. No, I, I, I was delighted when you said you were going to shift the emphasis. I kind of thought we needed it, you know, to talk about interpreting the photograph. Not that this isn't on any last word or any solution or any answer. The only thing what the right way of looking at something. Sorry about that you weren't.